stay in an attitude of prayer for just a moment. There's none of us that's not aware of what's going on in Texas right now. This is one of those times when, you know, I tease a lot of times about loving the movie Joe versus the Volcano, one of the silliest movies ever made, but I probably use more sermon illustrations off that silly movie. But there's that one time when they're out there in the middle of the ocean after their ship has crashed and they're floating and the moon comes up on the horizon and Tom Hanks prays the prayer that probably any person, whether they know Christ or not, would pray. And that is, oh God, I forgot how big you are. The eye of that hurricane is a speck in the eye of God. And yet he cares for every single person who is going through that. And so should we. Dennis Felix, as you know, heads up the disaster relief, not just for our church, but for this entire region of Southern Baptist. And he's asked for me just to remind us that, as you can imagine, it won't be long before we'll be called out to go to Texas. If you'd like to be a part of helping with the finances of that, the best way to do that is not to give to our church, but to uh, make your check to Metro East Baptist Association and just put disaster relief on the memo line. You can drop it in the offering plate this morning. We will not deposit it. We will send it to Swansea, to the Metro East office. They will take it, collect that, along with the other churches, 60-some-odd churches in our association, to help provide fuel that need to get there. You have to understand, there's no budget for disaster relief. Is all done through the free will offering of Southern Baptists and churches just like ours. So if you'd like to be a part of that, please feel free to do that. Also, want to thank you for praying for, for me this past week. Um, they was a little more complicated than they thought, and uh, I'm still praying for the day I can breathe out of my nose again. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I had sinus surgery this past week, and God was good. They found some things they weren't expecting. There actually was some brain cells up there inside that cranium, and uh, he said, I wasn't expecting to have to deal with this. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so uh, we're just, uh, Sharon is tired of me sleeping with my mouth open. You can imagine why, and so am I. Uh, so just pray, continue to pray for us. One more thing before we get into the message. And that's to those of you who are guests of that. We're just one more group of believers that comes together every Sunday to worship God, acknowledge the fact that He is God and we are not, to do as best we know how to listen to His Spirit speak through His Word, and then to adjust our lives by yielding them to Him, not by turning over a new leaf or trying harder to do the right things. We've already learned that is a recipe for failure. The way we are conformed to the image of Christ is by yielding ourselves to His hand. So if you're a guest with us today, and you're not yet a Christ follower, I want you to listen very carefully for the next few minutes. Because we're going to talk about something, you're going to say, well, what does this apply to me? This is some church in the ancient world that was started 2,000 years ago. What does it have to do with me? Well, we're all going to learn about what it has to do with us, how it impacts the way we live our lives every day. And by the way, those Connect cards I was talking about a few minutes ago, they're not just for the members of our church, but they're for you too, guests. If you have a prayer need, you write it down there. No one will see that but Pastor Greg and Pastor Daryl and myself. We'll know and we'll be able to pray. And I guess our deacons, the deacons get the prayer list as well. The deacons will be praying for you. 
And before you leave, on your way out the door, grab a copy of Case for Faith, a little book that we give to all of our guests just to say thank you for working. So would you join me as we pray together, and then we're going to open God's Word together and hear what He has to say. Father, this morning we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ across Texas. Didn't even dawn on me until about 4.30 this morning about all those pastors in those little Texas towns wondering if they'll be able to find a way to have some kind of church today. I'm sure some of them are so far underwater it's not even a question, but others of them are thinking, well, can we go out? Should we not go out? They're our brothers and sisters. No matter whether they're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterians or whatever, they know Christ and they're our brothers and sisters. We lift them up. We ask for protection. We ask for your hand. We ask that you would be over the first responders and help them. And then as our people begin to go in and help. We as Baptists have gained any reputation in this nation is because of our yellow jackets that our first responders wear when we go in. And I pray that you will prepare us as we are partnering with those men and women who will be the front line to bring help and relief. Father, help me as I seek to be your <laughs> clogged but hopefully clear spokesperson as we hear your word. Not to our glory, but to your glory. Because our lives exist in Christ. And in his name. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the passage that Lori read a few minutes ago, Acts chapter 11. Now, if you did not bring a Bible with you, there should be one in the rack right in front of you. The black one there is a Bible. You can turn to page 936, because I'd like for you to see what we're talking about. I think some of the passages probably will be on the screen behind me, but sometimes it's nice to be able to look at it right in front of your face. And so if you turn to page 936 in that black Bible in front of you, you look on the right-hand side, go down about two-thirds of the way, and it will say the church in Antioch or something about the church in Antioch. That's where we're going to be starting. It's verse number 19 in that chapter. Aren't you glad somebody was smart enough to fought up about 1,200 years ago to put numbers on the verses so we could find them? You realize that for the first several hundred years, all they had was just scrolls, and the book was just written like this. And so when you tried to find something, you had to literally look through and look through and look through until you found it. And then someone got the bright idea, well, let's, let's put numbers in here to kind of help us find things. So we're in chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 19 to 30. If you watch some of the throwback TV channels that show the old shows from the 70s and 80s and 90s, or if you're old enough to have remembered the 70s, 80s, and 90s watching TV, you remember four Vietnam vets who were accused of something they didn't do. And they formed a little recon team. They called them the A-Team. And most of us remember Mr. T and that mohawk he had. But I love it when George Pippard, who played the role of the leader of that group, would watch something that seemingly was impossible to get accomplished. And this team, while they were trying to escape the officials, were also doing these very heroic deeds. And he would say, with that cigar in his mouth, I love it when a plan comes together. Well, let me tell you, three months ago, out at Waterworks Park, we had 
a fish fry and worshipped out there, and we started looking at a plan that God Himself, through Jesus Christ, developed that was going to burst out from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Not to create thousands of 501c3 corporations, not to create all kinds of hierarchical structures in various locations, but to start a people movement. Moving from person to person, from mouth to mouth, from life to life, from parent to child, from neighbor to neighbor, from co-worker to co-worker, it would spread throughout the world. And before Jesus went back to heaven, he grabbed his disciples together and he said, listen, you wait here in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses. And don't let that word throw you. Just think about a witness in a courtroom. Someone who stands up and tells what they know to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to what we on the mission field used to call the EOE, the ends of the earth. And today, three months later, we finished the first half of Acts. We're going to take a break for a few months. We're going to come back in December and finish the second half of Acts. And we find the last piece of preparation for this movement that Jesus started at the cross. The church on the edge of the world. A church in an unusual place. And so this morning, I want us to look in these verses at basically four keys, I guess I could call them, to this church in Antioch. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background, but I don't want to overburden you with that. But I want you to understand why it was so critical that of all the places God would lead them to go, it was Antioch. And what Antioch did in relationship to Jerusalem, the, the first church, and the other churches that spread out from there. Four keys. The first one was how the church was birthed. You see, Antioch in the first century was the third largest city in the world. The largest, of course, was Rome, under the Roman Empire. Second largest was Alexandria. Third largest was Antioch. It was on what was called the Orontes River, about 15 miles from the coast. Boats could come up the river to Antioch, and there also was a port right there at the seashore of the Mediterranean Sea. If you kind of remember in your mind what a map of the Middle East looks like, the map of the Mediterranean, you know it kind of makes a big, a big circle around kind of like this. Africa's down here on the bottom, Europe is up here, the Middle East, Israel is here. And in that curve, right at the top of the curve, the Orontes River comes out, and there's Antioch. It was the capital of the province of Judea. It was a multicultural city, almost 800,000 people in the first century. Now, that's a big city by ancient world standards. There were Phoenicians, there were Greeks, there were Syrians, there were Jews, there were Arabs, there were Persians, there were Egyptians, there were Indians. It was a fully Hellenized, Greek-oriented city. Amazingly eclectic. There were about 70,000 Jews living in Antioch, second only to Jerusalem itself for the number. And most of them were people who had not been to Jerusalem except maybe to visit in probably over 400 years. If you remember your history in the Old Testament, you remember that at the end, as Judah fell farther and farther away from God, God finally sent them out into exile, into Babylon, the ancient empire of Babylon. And what the Babylonian kings did and then the Persian kings after that was they spread their subject peoples out over their entire kingdom in order to dissipate their ability to, rub, to rebel 
against the government. Makes perfect sense. If you don't want them to get together, you spread them out so they can't. And so over the centuries, these people who were Jewish by nationality and to a certain extent by religion were scattered all over the known world. And many of them ended up in these major metropolitan cities, Babylon, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. And so the Bible tells us in verse 19, Luke, who is writing this history for us, Luke, who was a friend of Paul's, probably himself a Jewish person but with some Gentile background, tells us that those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. In other words, to the Jews that were already there. All right, so what I just told you about the Jews that were already in Antioch, now we have a whole new group of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. So they're still Jewish by nationality to a certain extent because they still saw Christianity as a branch of Judaism, but they're not really Jews 100%. They're Christians. They're believers in Jesus Christ. Stephen, as you remember, that was the sermon I was going to share with you when I was in the hospital. But we didn't get to Stephen. We had to skip Stephen. Sorry, Stephen. My namesake, or I'm his namesake, however you say that. But Stephen had been martyred because of his faith. And when that, with that martyrdom, with that death of Stephen, all of a sudden, the Roman world just went wild over getting rid of these followers of Jesus Christ. And so they scattered wherever they could. Only ones that stayed behind were the apostles and a few people from the church of Jerusalem. Everybody else scattered to the four winds. And everywhere they went, they were sharing about Jesus Christ. And some of them, as it says in verse 19, went just to the Jews that were already there. They wanted to tell them, the Messiah has come. The one we've been waiting for. His name is Jesus. And they would tell the story. They were witnesses, just like Jesus had told them back in chapter 1. But others, it says... They were from Cyprus or from Cyrene. These are ones who were Jewish, yes, in nationality, but they had been Hellenized. They had been living in the Hellenistic world. They were speaking and came to Antioch speaking to the Hellenists. These were Gentile people who did not have the Jewish background, or it could have also been Greek-speaking Jews as well, but they didn't really care whether these people were Jewish in their religious background. They were just telling what they knew, what had happened to them. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the first thing I want us to see in this story is the fact that this church, this body of believers in Antioch, were not started by apostles. It wasn't started by Peter or Paul or James or John. It was started by, what are their names, by the way? Where's the list of names of the people that started this church? Well, there's, there's not one. We have no idea who these people were. They were just good old boys and girls just like you and me. They weren't famous. They weren't well-trained. They just knew that they had found the answer to the problem that they were seeking for, and his name was Jesus Christ. And you notice they, they refer to him as the Lord, not as the Messiah. Because to the Greek people, the word Messiah wouldn't have meant a lot to them. But Lord meant something in the Roman world. Every day they said, Caesar is Lord. And they began talking about this Jesus who is Lord. 
And the Bible tells us that when the people believed, they turned. In other words, there was two parts of the process. There was a change in their mind and in their hearts about believing that Jesus really was the one who could answer the issues in their lives that they were dealing with and struggling with. And in doing that, they then turned to him in order to follow him rather than follow the way they had gone before. And so this church was born. And let me tell you something, if you're here this morning and you're a you're, you're, you're curious about Jesus, but you're just not real sure yet whether you want to give him your life. The best person to talk to is not me, although I'd love to talk to you about it. It's the person sitting next to you in the pew, or behind you, or in front of you, or across the aisle. Because every one of us who are Christ followers had a point in our lives where we believed what we were told, and we turned from one way of living to another. Women, I can give you 17 verses from the Bible. We can tell you what happened to us and how our lives were changed by Jesus Christ. And it might just be that the Holy Spirit will use that because the Bible says that the hand of God was with them. They didn't have any formal training, but their work and God's hand came together and miracles began to occur in the lives of those people in the city. Well, next thing you know, you've got a bunch of people meeting. And they're singing, and they're praying, and they're preaching. And the folks at Jerusalem said, we didn't start this. I wonder what's going on. So look at verse 22. This is the second key. And that is how the church was received. In verse 22, it says, the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Now, don't get the wrong idea. I know we sometimes see the church at Jerusalem is kind of wanting to control things. They want to run the, run the show. Well, you've got to remember, this is where the church was originally born. The church was born. So they did have a care to make sure that the gospel was being taught clearly and that it was being taught well and that, and that, and that people were, were doctrinally pure. But usually if you look and if you read, whenever a report came back to Jerusalem, they examined it and then they gave thanks to God. And I think we can see the attitude of the people in Jerusalem by the person who they sent. Who did they send to Antioch? They didn't send Peter. They didn't send Andrew. They sent Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Because Barnabas was a Cyprian. He was from the island of Cyprus himself. He probably knew some of these guys. He was also a, a Jew, Jewish convert to Christianity from this dispersion of Jewish people around the Greek and Roman world. So Barnabas was the perfect guy to go because he was one of them. And... We know from earlier stories about Barnabas that he was a man of encouragement. He was a good encourager. When Paul, on the road to Damascus, was converted, he wanted to go to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders. They didn't want him there. They said, we know who you are. We think this is a bait and switch. We think you're trying to trick us. Barnabas said, Paul, you come with me. Well, Saul then, Saul, you come with me. I'll introduce you to him. And because they knew Barnabas, they knew that he was a good man, they trusted him. And they welcomed Paul into their midst. Third key. Once the church was accepted, received, and Barnabas sent to help them, how was the church encouraged? So what does Barnabas do when he gets there? Let's just look. Let's just start at verse 23 and just walk our way through it. What does he do? When he arrived, saw the grace of God, he sat down with leaders and said, now there's a few things I need to talk to you about because you're not doing it quite right. You're not pronouncing the words correctly when you say them, or you're, you're not standing at the right time or sitting at the right time, or you're not meeting in the proper place, or you don't have the properly educated pe- Is that what he did? No, what does it say? It says, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He just said, Woo-hoo! this is awesome. Look at what's going on. 
In this huge city, 800,000 people, there's a church. And he was glad. He was excited. That's what an encourager does. They come in there and say, you know what, we, we got some things we're going to talk about later, but beforehand, I just got to tell you, you guys are doing an awesome job. I think you're wonderful. And God is good. Look what he's doing. He was glad. And then what did he do after that? He encouraged all of them to do two things. To remain true to the Lord and to do it with steadfastness is actually the word. That's kind of an old-fashioned word. But in the whole in the it says firm resolve of the heart. He told them, he said, now listen, here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to plant your feet good and solid. Get your knees bent. So that your feet are firm and steady. Because I'm going to tell you, not everybody's going to like what you're saying. Okay? Meriwether, May, Mayweather, what was his name? May, McGregor? Yeah. Get your feet firm. And then focus on the Lord and on nothing else. Don't focus all this other stuff. You focus on the Lord and keep doing the work that you're doing. And you're going to be fine. You're going to do great. And then we find out what kind of man he was in verse 24. He was a good man. Now, please, in today's world, everything is good from a Dairy Queen blizzard for 99 cents to your spouse's demeanor. Good. Oh, it's good. How are you doing today? I'm good. How was work today? It was good. What's think about them Cardinals? How was that game last night? It was good. Finally winning again. Good. But in the Bible, the word good is a very, very important word. It is not just one of those passive vanilla with no chocolate syrup or chocolate chips sprinkled on top kind of word. It is a word that is full of deep meaning. It means that there is a goodness in this person. Paul actually said that good is better than righteous. Good means that their character, their nature is in context and in consort and in line with God's will and God's plan. This is the kind of man that Barnabas was. He was a good man. Not only was he good, he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And the Bible tells us that large numbers of people were added to the Lord right there in Antioch as Barnabas was there helping them along. And then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. When he found him, he brought him. He said, Saul, there are so many converts in, in Antioch. I can't handle them all. I need you to come and help me. So he went to Tarsus, found him there. It's been probably 10 years since the, Antioch, I mean, since the Damascus experience of Paul. He's been there just working and teaching and preaching, and he's growing in his faith. I'll be getting beaten up for it a few times. And now Barnabas goes and says, hey, I need you to come. Do you realize what a risk Barnabas took in doing that? I don't know if Barnabas knew ahead of time or not, but we all know from reading our Bibles that we start out with Barnabas and Saul, but before much longer it's going to be Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas gets to take a back seat. He steps back and lets Saul, Paul, take the front place. But you know what? Barnabas didn't care. He wasn't interested in getting the credit. He wasn't interested in being in charge. He wasn't interested in being the number one guy. He just wanted to see the people of Antioch discipled and growing in their faith. And so he went and found somebody to follow. Now, I want to stop for just a minute and go back over those qualities. Because if you would like to be an encourager to others, you need to be looking at having some of these same qualities. Number one, an encourager is easily gladdened when they see God working. Number two, an encourager urges people to persevere and stay true to what God has called them to do. Thirdly, 
An encourager is a person of character. They're good people. And they're filled with God's Spirit. They're filled with faith. And they're not afraid to bring others in to help. They don't have to have all the credit. You want an encourager in your life? You look for a person like that. I am blessed to have several people in my life that are encouragers to me when I get discouraged. They encourage me. They're joyful when they see what God is doing in my life personally and in my ministry. They are there to encourage me to stay the line, keep the faith, keep moving forward in the direction that God is leading you. They're good people that rely on the Lord and teach me to rely on Him more and more. And they don't care whether anybody knows who they are. That's how the church was encouraged. Fourthly, how was it incorporated into the larger church of its time? Well, for that, we have to go to verse 27. Because it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas that went to Antioch. There were others that came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus shares that there was going to be a problem coming up in the Roman world. A famine. It's going to affect the entire empire. And Luke just gives us a little footnote saying, by the way, it did happen during the time of Claudius. They're actually secular records. We pretty well know exactly when this, when this uh, famine took place. So what did they do in Antioch? They go, wow, you know, we're a young church. We don't have many leaders. We better save as much food as we can because when this famine comes, we're going to need to help each other out. Let's, let's, why don't we go rent a space and let's start saving some of our extra food now so we'll have what we need later on. Isn't that a good idea? Let's start a sinking fund. But that's not what they did, was it? They said, you know what? We wouldn't know the gospel if it hadn't been for the people in Jerusalem. So why don't we take what we have and send it to them so that they can be helped too? You see, they saw themselves as part of a bigger thing than just their little local congregation in Antioch. They understood that there was more to doing the work of Christ than just serving in Antioch. One of the things I love about being a Southern Baptist is the fact that we are constantly reminded through our North American Mission Board, through our International Mission Board, that the world does not stop at 320 Covington Drive. It starts here. And it continues to go out to a lost world. And whether it's through our cooperative program giving, whether it's through our, our special offerings at the holidays for missions, whether it is by going on mission projects and mission trips, whether it's by having missionaries come in and we pray for them, whether it's adopting a people group that we lift up in prayer before the Lord that they might hear the gospel, we are constantly being reminded that the call of the great commission of Jesus Christ has not yet been completed. And that's the way the church in Antioch was. And by doing that, that linked them with the church at Jerusalem. And I think it's very interesting that for the first time in this passage, we actually hear them talk about two separate distinct churches. The church at Antioch sent resources to the church at Jerusalem. So while they were united in their purpose, they also recognized the fact that they were two separate congregations and they were helping each other. And we're going to see later on, when we get in December, into the work of Paul, that Paul went to places, he went to Ephesus, started a church. He went to Philippi, started a church. Went to Colossae, started a church. And then these churches began helping each other out. And they saw each other as part of one big body, one big family. I also think it's interesting to see where the money was taken. It says in verse 29, each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul, not to the apostles. Isn't that interesting? You remember earlier in Acts, the apostles handled all the money. 
Well, now things had grown enough to the point that the apostles saw they had a bigger job to do. Peter was traveling and sharing. Others were doing things. And so there were leaders in that church of Jerusalem that handled the affairs of that local congregation while the apostles were looking at the whole church. But already we see individual churches setting up their leadership so that together they could work and communicate with one another. The last thing I want to share with you, I skipped it intentionally so we could come back up to it. And that's up in verse 26. While Barnabas and Saul were there, they began discipling. And I'm sure part of that discipling process was about how to share your faith with others, how to continue spreading this movement into this city. Now remember, 800,000 people. We don't know how big this little church was. Couldn't have been too large. But they began to have such an impact on the community that they started calling the people that belonged to that church Christians. We say Christians today. Now, they didn't call themselves that. They called themselves brothers or believers. The Jews would not have called them that because that would mean they were followers of the Messiah. Well, they sure didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. This had to have been a Gentile name, Christians. He said, well, Pastor, why are you pronouncing it so weird? Well, because you need to understand the etymology of the word. If a person is a native of Canada, what's he called? A Canadian. If they're a native of Brazil, they're a Brazilian. If they were a native of Phoenicia, they were Phoenicians. They were Alexandrians. We're the exception because since America ends with a, a vowel, we're called Americans. But it's the same thing. So these people were called Christians, which meant they were part of a brand new nationality. Now listen to that. Suddenly, there's a third kind of person in the world. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and there's Christians. It was a name that was given to them, maybe a little bit to scoff at them a little bit, perhaps. I'm not going to deny that. But it mainly was an identifier because they had so impacted the community of that 800,000 member city. And they said, we've got to put a name on these people. They're not followers of Daphne. They're not followers of Adonis. They're not followers of Chloe. They're not followers of this God or that God. They're followers of this Christ. So we'll call them Christians. And their job was to live up to that name. The question I have to ask us, do we? Do I live up to my title? Oh, we live in a world where it's changing, I guess, but we live in a world where for a long, long time, being an American and being a Christian were all just almost synonymous. If you weren't a Jew or a Muslim, you were a Christian. Every American's a Christian. What are you telling me about I need to be a Christian? I am a Christian. I'm an American. You ever surrendered your life to Christ? I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm a Christian. And all of a sudden, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, is becoming more and more and more unique. That's why a lot of us don't use the word, not that we don't want to use the word Christian, but we don't use the word Christian, we use something like Christ follower or disciple of Jesus. To define the fact that we don't just carry a generic sort of name that's equated with people from the West. We truly are people who are passionately 
committed to standing and with tears flowing down our faces, saying, in Christ alone my hope is found. Not in Wall Street, not in Washington, not in my job, not in my home, not in my marriage, not in my children, not in my health, not in my wealth. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. And my question to us today is, are we living up to the title? Or do people even know that we are Christians? That's the challenge today. And that's why I want you right now to grab your Connect card and take a look at it. Just grab it right there. Just, just pull it out. Now see if I was Homer Lindsay Jr. First Jackson, I said, now wave it at me. But I'm not going to do that to you. I mean, if you wanted to, you could. There you go. Okay, thanks, Al. I got some things I want you to think about, and then we're going to pray. Number one. Would you be willing, just like these people in Antioch were, to rely on God's hand and just get out there and tell people what you know about what it means to follow you? Beloved, I've got good news for you. Their salvation doesn't depend on you. Their salvation depends on Christ. But Christ has chosen, God has chosen to use means to accomplish the gospel going to the lost. And guess what those means are? You're looking at us. You see, the reason we obey the Great Commission is not because we're afraid if we don't, that person's going to go to hell. They'll only go to hell if they reject Jesus Christ. He will get the gospel to them one way or the other. We do it because he's commanded us to do it. We do it because we want to be obedient to him. So my question today is, number one, would you be willing to take the next step of saying, I'm going to trust the hand of God to work, and I'm going to go and just share what I know whenever God gives me the opportunity. I'm just going to tell what happened in my life. Underneath that, there's a lot of folks out there that are discouraged. And I don't just mean other believers. There's so many people who are discouraged today. Politics, economy, finances, racial issues, moral issues, ethical issues. People are discouraged. You know, I don't want to be a prognosticator. I am sorry. I don't know what happened to me or to us, but the, but the homecoming parade just slipped up on me. We have a long-standing tradition of being in the homecoming parade. We, we're the ones that pass out the popsicles. We've done that for, what, 10 years, 12 years. Sometimes all we had was the bus. We'd drive the bus and pass out popsicles. And so I was asking somebody last night about the parade. They said, you know what, shortest parade I've, I can ever remember said there wasn't a single church in the parade this year. Not one. Even Hope wasn't there. No disrespect to Hope. I'm saying, no, even it's a big church. But my point is, I think part of it is just that there's some people who are just kind of discouraged. It's just hard to get excited about things. And I'm not saying that we're there, but... I think with me, you just had a pastor who just had a, somebody's arm up his nose till his elbow and just forgot. It sure felt like that. It felt like he was scratching my nose with his elbow as he was working on me. But we need to be encouragers. We need to see, even in the worst sinner, the image of God in them. Now, I mean, we cover over what they do, but we just need to see in them God's image and say, you know, you're a really caring person. Well, well, thanks, I try to be. But you know what? You could be a lot more caring if you would let the one who cares for you be in charge of your life. And then you could just begin talking about what Jesus did. Maybe you never even get that far. Maybe you just say, you know what? I'm so glad I can see, I can see a shadow of God in you. Don't ever let the idea that we are totally depraved take away from that that we're still creating God. Number three, underneath that one. Would you be willing to take the next step of saying, I'm going to look for opportunities to help other people? 
Did you notice? They didn't say, well, I wonder how much they need in Jerusalem, which is really a secret way of saying, how little can I get by with giving? They said, no, 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 let's each just give what we can, and we'll send it to them and see what happens. And so rather than waiting for people to come to us, asking us for help, instead, we need to say, hey, what can we do? How can we help? We go to City Hall. We go to House and Neighborly Services. We go to other organizations. What can I do as an individual? What can we do as a sensitive class? What can we do as a church to impact the lives of people in our community? With the goal in mind of opening the door, sharing the gospel. And then the fourth one, I had four this time, so I had to put one over on the other side. And that is, Pastor, about all I can say right now is I just want to live my life worthy of my time. That may be all you can say today. That's okay. That's a lot. That's a huge amount to say. I want to live worthy of my title. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a follower. Christ is all I have. He is all I need. Father, in this room, there are a wonderful mix of people. Some of us have followed you for a long, long time. To be perfectly honest, in that long, long time, we have tended to get a little bit of routine. We've lost our edge. We could be encouragers, but so often we need encouragers. We could be sharing with others in small communities. There are others of us in the room who are fairly new believers, very excited about our walk with you, but we had no idea we were going to get so much opposition. Not just from other people, but even within our hearts, suddenly things are hard. We need encouragement. Come alongside of us and say, plant your feet good and firm. Keep your focus on there are others of us here today, Father. I believe in my heart. In fact, I know by their own testimony who have never yet surrendered their lives in obedience. I don't understand that, but I love them, I pray for them, and I know that you love them. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself even today. They believe all the right things, but they've never turned away from trusting in themselves to trusting in your son. And I pray that today they'll begin that turn process. Like a big old boat, it just doesn't happen on a dime. It takes time. But it starts with acknowledging the fact that I need to surrender my life to Christ. So Father, for those that are like that in the room today, I pray that today would be the day that they begin that turn. But Father, wherever we are in our lives, those of us who call ourselves Christians, with a capital C, must ask ourselves whether we are living lives worthy of our title. I pray that we are.